Are you ready to get read in? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast. You know, where we talk about writing, spies, and writing about spies. I'm your host, espionage author P.A. Duncan, and this is Season 2, Episode 32. This week, I'm finishing up reading from my novella, A Change for the Better. This time from Part 2, which began its life as the novelette Hidden Agendas, a sort of sequel to the novelette that forms part one of A Change for the Better, which was entitled Who Watches the Watchman? As I've said before, the novelette Hidden Agendas was my way to deal with my emotions after the 2016 election. Again, not a debate topic, merely a reflection. So let's set up the first reading. As usual, yes, I'm not a linear writer. So we begin on the evening of January 19th, 2017, where my Fisher is taking a stroll through a gutted directorate facility. Well, why? Well, you'll have to read the whole novella to figure that out. So we start on then, and then we kind of go back in time to how we got to that point. All I will say is that she doesn't like the way the U.S. is going and doubts the directorate, if it stays in the U.S., can maintain its neutrality. A Change for the Better Chapter 21 Eve of Destruction January 19, 2017 Directorate Headquarters Somewhere near Washington, D.C. Her footsteps echoed in the abandoned hallways of a structure where she'd worked for four decades. The empty rooms, the bare walls, made it unfamiliar, but it also revealed the structure's decrepitude. Leaking water had made concrete crumble. Construction of the area's subway system years before had left cracks in the walls and ceiling, cracks which had been patched again and again as they'd propagated. Anti-eavesdropping paneling had covered a multitude of sins. Was it her imagination, or was that the smell of mildew? Musty and reminding her of old, poorly kept English countryside houses, it made her nose wrinkle. Seeing this place now, stripped to its bare bones, she realized it was rather shabby and dilapidated. But she suspected she would be, too, when she was seventy years old. When he knew his ship was sinking, 
when he knew far fewer than half of his passengers were on lifeboats, did Edward Smith pace the empty corridors and staterooms of the Titanic? An inapt analogy, she told herself. The directorate wasn't sinking, headed for a grave two and a half miles beneath the ocean's surface. However, she and Captain Smith did have something in common besides RMS Titanic, built in Belfast with the help of a subsidiary of her family business. They were both responsible for the destruction of the entities entrusted to their care. Over the long years here, she'd come to think of this space as small, cramped, compared to the sprawling CIA complex or the new campus of the Department of Homeland Security or the gargantuan hulk of a building on the Thames, which housed British intelligence. Even the NSA was larger. Yet, as they'd begun to move everything out, the underground bunker, a Cold War edifice, which had housed the United Nations Intelligence Directorate since its inception, seemed to expand like a dying star. What's with the destructive imagery? She asked herself. You're reacting as if you failed. In a way, she had. She'd traveled the high road, and decided not to take direct action to affect the outcome of an election in the world's foremost democracy. Because she hadn't, because one of her inner circle had betrayed her and the directorate's principles, that democracy faced a test she'd become convinced it couldn't handle. And this organization, which had been her life for two-thirds of it now, was not going to become the tool of a man owned by Russian President Dmitry Kargan and answerable to the most extreme elements of America's right wing. Not that she hadn't tried for a different outcome. Thanks to a retired spy, she had damning intelligence on the new U.S. president, and she'd leaked it with caution and to the proper sources who'd done the right thing to no avail. In America's new reality show government, real news became fake news, and fake news got a prominent position in the White House. Without the usual signage and color-coded stripes on the hallways, she got a bit turned around, but her instincts were good, as were her people. She found not a stray file folder, thumb drive, or roll of toilet paper left behind. The directorate was void of the people, equipment, and verve behind its successes. In fewer than 36 hours, it would run at full operational levels again, in a new location outside the United States of America. Because of that, Every living past and the current Secretary General and several U.S. government officials in and out of office would have to deny that it had ever existed. The Directorate's protocols put on her and no one else the responsibility for assuring 
no physical evidence of the organization remained. Quote, the operational head of the directorate shall take appropriate steps to assure the abandoned physical location of the directorate in the United States of America is removed from existence. End quote. She paused at the door leading to what had been the ingress, where everyone who entered had cleared security, and she looked back over her shoulder. There were ghosts to haunt here, the first two directors, a number of agents who'd left on missions and who'd never come back, some under her watch. The wall commemorating them had been the most difficult thing to move, given its size, but move it they had. It would likely be in its place of honor in the new facility before she arrived herself. She wondered if the ghost of her disgraced deputy, whose action had set this in motion and who had died not by her hand but with her tacit approval, would float about the place, what little would be left of it. No, she suspected if he haunted anyone he'd haunt her. That was entirely too Irish, she decided, when none of the ghosts manifested, but she left the lights on anyway. In a few minutes, that wouldn't matter. The elevator, with its quirks and jerks, rose and deposited her in the restricted portion of the garage, where she climbed into the armored van, her transportation for a number of years now. Her driver and two bodyguards had waited there for her, sensing she'd wanted to take her last walk here alone. Devoid of vehicles, the garage, which until recently had been straining to house all the employees' cars, seemed cavernous. As the van left each level, the lights died behind it. The driver took them to a high spot, a mile or so away. The mid-rise office building above the directorate stood empty and dark and against the glimmering northern Virginia skyline. Supposed cracks in the building's foundation, conveniently confirmed by a fake report from a structural engineer, had rendered it condemned. The legitimate businesses within it had all been moved out and relocated. The demolition date was set, the charges placed, and the local government convinced a nighttime demolition on the eve of a presidential inauguration was appropriate for safety reasons. She checked her watch. One minute before midnight. The precision of the charges would make certain the building above imploded into the bunker below. Tons of concrete would seal the bunker and the debris off to form a new foundation, or perhaps, since she was into historical analogies, a parking lot like part of the Fuhrer bunker. And she would watch. Because this had been her ship and she had been its captain. Unlike Smith, however, she had no desire to go down with it. She had worried the implosion would trigger her PTSD, worried her head would go back to that clear, bright morning of September 11, 2001, when she'd clawed her way from the rubble of Number 2 World Trade Center. 
but she'd been inside hell that day, not outside watching the collapse. At five seconds past midnight, she sat at a computer located in the transport and entered a series of commands, followed by a password. Her pinky finger hit enter, and she turned to look out the front windscreen. Because the conflagration was underground, the flare of flame was brief and small. The building seemed to turn in on itself, sinking as it did so. There might have been a slight vibration that shook the transport. One of her guards watched with night vision binoculars. Compact debris field. Little scatter. Should be no issues. Contractors poised to move in for the cleanup, he said. She watched the debris cloud settle. Let's get to the airport, she murmured. She turned away as the transport began the half-hour trip to Dulles International Airport. Forty-five minutes later, she, the guards, and the transport were on a cargo aircraft. Moments after that, they were in the air. From her comfortable seat next to her husband, she watched the lights of Washington, D.C. fade from view. My Fisher left America for perhaps the last time. All right, break time. This past weekend, I attended a virtual writer's symposium, and one of the presenters did a workshop on dialogue in fiction. I didn't agree with some of what he said. Well, la-di-da, you might say. But one of the things my critiquers and beta readers have commented on my work is the realism of my dialogue. Now, that's probably because I act out the dialogue with the accents to see what sounds right. You know, is this the way people would talk? Anyway, one of this presenter's points was using dialogue as expository material, that is, giving the reader needed backstory or other information that the reader requires between two people or more having a conversation. And I've done that. And it's kind of one of my favored ways to get a lot of information out. And, and I usually do this. It's usually my and Alexei. And they're going over the intelligence that they've obtained from somewhere to draw conclusions. So I have used that method. I, I have no qualms using that method. This person seemed to think that that was the only way you should provide backstory and exposition, and, and that's simply not the case. What I just read to you was all expository material, and there were two lines of dialogue in it. All that went on in that chapter is in my Fisher's head. This is what she's seeing and experiencing as she walks through the directorate, even though I didn't phrase all of it as her thinking, you know this is what she's pondering in an empty directorate. Now, a long, long chapter with 
no dialogue can be stodgy and boring. I think this one has a good balance. Now, I could have had one of those security guards, one of her bodyguards, walking through this place with her. And I could have had them do an ongoing conversation about what she's seeing and he's seeing or, or whatever. But I thought this method, particularly opening a story, was the better way to go. Now, that was my feeling. I'm the writer, I control the world that I'm creating. Whether it went over with readers, all I'll say is no one has complained. <laughs> so, uh, no spy or espionage-related movies or series to discuss this week. Though I did watch last week a short series on Amazon Prime through the app BritBox from Great Britain called David Jason's Secret Service. It's only three or four episodes, and it's about the history of the British Secret Service. And Sir David goes to the various sites around England where the British Secret Service has facilities or had facilities, and he chats with historians or archivists about various aspects of the service's history. And he goes into this with kind of a James Bond mentality. He admits in the intro to each episode that he's been fascinated with spies since he was a little boy. And his image of them came from James Bond movies. So he gets to find out that, yes, there was a Q, and I've, I've written about this. There was a Q who created gadgets for the SOE and the secret the British Secret Service in World War II. It's, again, only three or four episodes, but it's really informative. I'm reading a book right now about the history of the CIA, and so it's, a, it's an interesting contrast how the CIA was created and the British Secret Service, which goes back well before the CIA was ever a twinkle in anyone's eye. Another series I watched on Prime is entitled Red Chapters. Uh, these are short but in-depth examinations of the history of the Bolshevik Revolution, Soviet Russia, and other communist states around the world. It's not strictly fo focused on Russian or Soviet intelligence organizations, but the secret police, the KGB, the Cheka, the NKVD, whatever their, you know, various iterations were, they are mentioned in connection with Stalin's purges in particular. Now, having studied Russia between the revolution and, and through World War II, I personally think the parts about Lenin are a little anti-Bolshevik and propagandistic than being objective. But overall, it's another good historical series that gives you insight, particularly after Lenin's death into the machinations that Stalin used to consolidate his power. So I recommend both of those. 
David Jason's Secret Service, and Red Chapters. And in non-espionage-related activities, I rewatched the movie Field of Dreams in preparation for tonight's Yankees-White Sox game played on the farm where Field of Dreams was filled. Now, for modern-day major leaguers to play, they had to build a bigger field nearby the tourist attraction. The 1989 movie was so emotionally significant to me. I went to see it seven years after my father's death. My dad had been an amateur baseball and softball pitcher. He worked that around his army responsibilities, and sometimes he would pitch a baseball game for a local bases army team in the afternoon and then drive back to Virginia to pitch a softball game at night. I, as a little girl, saw a lot of his nighttime games and the clearest memory is how his arm was such a blur when he fast pitched in a softball game. I never saw him pitch a baseball game. But he loved baseball. Family legend is he took me to a World Series in New York when I was barely six months old. Something unheard of for dads way back then. Unfortunately, no one is around now to confirm that. And I didn't find out about that until several years ago when I went to a funeral of another, uh, of one of his brother's wives, his, one of his sisters-in-law. And my cousin said to me about how he remembered how my dad would take him and his brothers and the other cousins to baseball games in Washington, D.C. And that one time he took me to a baseball game when I was a baby And I had to go back to the year I was born. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I said baseball game. I meant a World Series. He took me to a World Series when I was a baby. So I had to go back to the year I was born, which shall just be a secret that I'll keep right now, to see when the Yankees, because it had to be the Yankees that was his favorite team, which is why it's my favorite team, were playing in a World Series in the year of my birth. and. I, you know, counted on my fingers. I was born in April. This was in September or October. So I was barely five months old. No one can confirm that now, as I said, because my cousin said to me, well, I think he took you to a baseball game, to a World Series when you were a baby. But my love of baseball had to come from somewhere. And by the time I was in my teens and early 20s, my dad's and my political differences were so pronounced, the only thing we could talk about without arguing was baseball. So baseball, very important to me. At the end of Field of Dreams, I guess I should say spoiler alert for you younger people who may not have seen the movie, When Kevin Costner, as Ray Kinsella, 
ask his father if he wants to play catch. That's box of tissues time. When the movie reached that point in the theater in 1989, I wasn't the only one sobbing into a hanky. Plenty of men were too. And you know they understood the situation. A tense relationship with your father, but after your father's gone, you'd give most anything to play one more game of catch. All right, so let's end up with a reminder that A Change for the Better, the ebook version, is on sale for all of August for only 99 cents. And who knows, if the Yankees win tonight, which is always a question this season with the Yankees, maybe I'll have it free for a few days to celebrate. All right. Let me set up the next reading. So, as we saw earlier, Mai has decided to move the directorate out of the United States because of pressure from the incoming Kermit Harlan administration, who wants to use the organization as a personal spy agency. She has to tie up a lot of loose ends, and she still wants the new administration to know she will be their watchman with eyes on everything it does. She uses a bit of time-honored tradecraft. She sets up one of the incoming president's advisors in a compromising situation, takes pictures, and begins to torment him with them from afar. But don't feel sorry for him. He's a neo-Nazi. Chapter 32. A Change for the Better. January 21st, 2017. UN Campus, Geneva, Switzerland. Mai had stayed cool and aloof for the tour of the new facility on the grounds of the UN complex in Geneva. The original location of the defunct League of Nations and now home to more than 20 UN agencies among them the Office for Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, the World Health Organization, and the Human Rights Council. The United Nations campus at Geneva had always been, in Nelson's mind at least, the contingency location for the directorate. Finished in early 2016, it had sat empty and may have remained that way if not for one man's hidden agenda. Uprooting her life was another thing Mai could blame on O. Luther Hunt. She hadn't thought the ten-week turnaround doable, but her diligent employees proved her wrong. Not the first time, she hoped, not the last. As Mai toured department after department, she saw the space saw the modern accoutrement, saw the happy faces of people setting up their workplaces. She let her own excitement ratchet up. She kept that under control, though. It wouldn't do for the ice queen to squee over new, tasteful office furniture, coordinated colors, and wall art. And it was bright. 
the old directorate's lighting system had tried to simulate circadian rhythms and trick people into thinking they weren't in a windowless underground bunker. Mai had already heard several jokes about personnel disintegrating in the sunlight streaming from the countless windows. Nathan Hempstead was ecstatic. He now had separate areas for data forensics and computer research and development. So excited, he was almost inarticulate. A first, surely. In the new space for cybersecurity, Lila Chowdhury almost bounced with glee. Her burgeoning relationship started back in America, seemingly forgotten. Elizabeth Drake effused over the space allotted the analysis department and was even more excited to see there was enough room to expand her staff. She and Mai had already planned a team, a large one, whose sole focus would be the Harlan administration. They'd have a dedicated area and plenty of resources for their work. Mason Wallace who privately had voiced the most concerns to Mai about the move, after he saw the separate building for the UN Security Forces and the UN Special Forces, declared the move to be the best decision Mai had ever made. Everyone seemed happy, contagiously so, as they settled in with a minimum of complaints. Paula Shaw... Mai's chief of staff, kept a running list of any issues on her tablet, a punch list, she called it, and Mai wondered about the etymology. All those years living in America, and there were still idioms she'd never quite grasped. Now, she supposed, she'd have to accustom herself to Swiss idioms, in four official languages, no less, and none of them English. Lucky for her, her French was la perfection. The operations center next to her office was her penultimate stop. She was glad to see the one from the directorate had been replicated here in exact detail, only twice the size. Good. She'd had a hand in designing the previous one to her optimum use. Why change now? Well, Moving an entire clandestine organization 4,000 miles away and hiding that from prying American eyes while diverting Swiss attention away from a minor influx in the population of Geneva was a pretty significant change, but one for the better. It was done now, and she was eager to get back to work, manipulating, blackmailing, eavesdropping, bending politicians and governments to do the right thing. Ten weeks had been too long to stay out of the spy game, her little sting on presidential adviser Greg Rogers notwithstanding. Still lacking personal touches, as she preferred it, her private office was far from cozy. The furniture was a bit too European modern for her taste, but new headquarters, new office. She'd adjust. On her desk was the single indulgence from her old office, a picture of her and Alexei, smiling and looking into each other's eyes. Those eyes had gleamed at her this morning when she'd left to come to the new building, a promise between them for almost forty years. 
On the corner of the desk opposite the picture was the Korean Buddha, on its stand, its ancient eyes fixed on her. A little late in her life for spiritual guidance, but she'd let former Secretary General Wu Jin-ri know the family heirloom he'd gifted her was in a place of honor. She walked to the floor-to-ceiling windows, hardened against projectiles of many types and coated so no one could see in, but without disturbing her view of Lake Geneva. Across the lake on a slight hill above the water, she could make out her new house. That Alexei could stand on the dock there and look at her was a comfort. She ran the building's layout through her head and placed where her office was. Later, they'd stand on the dock together and she'd show him where to look. Well, Paula said, what do you think? My turned to her chief of staff, suppressing her laughter. Oh, my God, my office has windows, real windows. Paula laughed and said, yes, isn't it grand? Indeed. Paula gave her a slight frown. Is everything okay, boss? It's hard to explain. This is the first time I've set foot here, but it feels familiar. Far more familiar than her last weeks in a country that had been her home since she was 19, where she'd wakened to an atmosphere that reminded her of mid-1930s Berlin. That she'd only read about, studied as an undergrad and graduate student. It was different altogether to experience it. Now she had to do what she could to keep history from repeating itself, from 4,000 miles away. Well, my Fisher, you've always worked best with the challenge, she thought. Best to build in some familiarity in such a big change, Paula said. But I get what you mean. I already feel as if we've been here for years. I think you did the right thing for the right reasons, if that's what you're worried about. No, sure, I put those doubts away when I blew up the old place. She rubbed her hands together in anticipation. Well then, time to get to work. Send the notification to all stations and substations. We're back in business. Operations to proceed as usual. Schedule a secure video conference with all department heads and station chiefs. I'll notify the Secretary General personally. Will do. And then I'll get started on the punch list. Enjoy your view, Paula said and left. My headed to the alcove containing her video conference equipment. No. First things first. Time to fuck with some heads. She took a burner phone from her desk, punched in a number to receive her text, and selected a photograph from the directorate's secure version of Dropbox. Smiling, she hit send. A reply came back almost right away. She answered, her smile moving from amusement to triumph. On her way back to the video conference alcove, she said, Benedict, initiate secure video conference with the UN Secretary General, top priority. One moment, please, while I place the call came the computer's reply, programmed to sound like Benedict Cumberbatch. 
Before she dropped the phone down the chute to her burn bag, she read the last incoming message and smiled again. Damn, it was good to be back at what she loved doing. Epilogue, January 21st, 2017, Washington, D.C. In the Secret Service limo, informally known as The Beast, while on the way to some post-inauguration celebration, Greg Rogers, President Kermit Harlan, and the President's Chief of Staff, Milo Thames, kept up an ongoing strategy meeting. Mostly, it was Rogers and Thames, while Harlan scrolled through comments on his Twitter feed and complained about the crowd numbers at his inauguration. Harlan's trophy wife, a former Lufthansa flight attendant he'd knocked up years ago, stared out a window, her face expressionless, her eyes brimming with moisture. I say we get our new UN ambassador to hit the Secretary General hard about the directorate, Thames said. Despite Attorney General Savoy's claim he never said such a thing, we need to push it with de Cruz. Reiterate that unless we get that briefing about the directorate, we shut off money to the UN. That'll get his attention. Yeah, Harlan said. You guys said this directorate thing would help me crack down on the lying press. I need it. Maybe we can get some good shit on the Randolph bitch once and for all. Put her in cuffs, right? Harlan laughed, echoing his favorite chant from the campaign. He turned his attention back to his phone and muttered to himself, uh, Put her in cuffs. He smiled as he scrolled. We can do that, Rogers told Thames, both of them ignoring the man they'd gotten elected. But I'm going to get someone started on deep background on DeCruz. There's got to be something he doesn't want known. Since we don't have access to the directorate yet, you can't use the FBI or the CIA. Especially since the Attorney General is being a shit all of a sudden and the ex-CIA director pulled his resignation stunt. Don't worry. I have other sources. Companies we used at Real News Network. And there's that cabinet secretary's brother and his private security firm. We'll have the directorate in our bullpen soon enough. The two-pronged approach, Thames said. Good idea. Of course it is. Now, let's go over the schedule of the executive orders, Rogers said, but held up a hand when his phone signaled he'd had a text. Without hesitation, because so few people had this number, hell, the president didn't even have it yet, he opened the messaging app. The picture he saw almost stopped his heart. He felt it flutter in his chest, a rapid tattoo that made him dizzy. He read, I'm watching you. There's plenty more of these. Thumbs trembling, he sent back, What the fuck is this? Your worst fucking nightmare. Tell me who you are, he sent back in all caps. He waited for an answer, his hand squeezing the phone. The blackouts after his drinking binges had become more frequent lately, but he would never... Would he? He sent his message again and got an unable-to-deliver message indication. Rogers, you okay? You're white as a sheet, said Thames. What? Yeah. Yeah, fine. The beast stopped at the celebration venue. Jesus Christ! President Harlan said. 
put a fucking smile on your fucking face, which I paid for, by the way. Rogers thought the president had spoken to him, but Harlan had directed the command to his wife. The smile she had made good use of in a first-class cabin appeared, but her eyes couldn't lie. All right, that wraps up readings from A Change for the Better. For the next two weeks, I'll read from the other novella on sale this month, Dateline Belgrade. Now, a bit of a warning. I'm hoping to record and schedule both podcasts for the rest of August before I leave for a week-long writing retreat starting on August 22nd. Since it's a retreat, internet access is spotty at best, hence the need to double up. However, if I run out of time, that August 26th episode may be late, like several days late, so I'll apologize now in case. And remember, Change for the Better is only 99 cents for the ebook on Amazon. And now for your weekly COVID rant. The statistics are really alarming. So many states, particularly ones who have actively discouraged people from getting vaccinated, are experiencing surges of the COVID Delta variant, which, unlike the original virus, infects children under 12. A lot of the hospitalizations are children 5 to 10 years old. Hospitals are getting full, turning people away. Surgeries are being postponed because there are no beds. And the overwhelming majority of infections, hospitalizations, and deaths are people who were not vaccinated. If you're vaccinated and you get a breakthrough infection of the COVID variant, it's basically very mild on you. A couple of the New York Yankees were recently placed on the COVID injured list. And maybe five days after that happened in the past, like in the past few days, they've been, uh, you know, practicing working out, not in contact with anyone else but pitching, doing other kind of baseball exercise-related things. So if you're vaccinated you pro and, you, and you get the variant, you're probably not going to need to be hospitalized. So the hospital beds that are filling and overwhelming some hospitals are people who have not been vaccinated getting the variant. It's far more deadly than we realized. Please, for the sake of your country and your fellow citizens, because this is not just about you, it's about everybody, get vaccinated. We've had a bit of a tease of what getting back to normal is like, and frankly, I liked that. So let's not ruin that for everyone else. Wear a mask, wash your hands, watch your social distancing, get vaccinated. I want to see you out there soon, shopping, dining out, enjoying nature, and of course, keeping an eye out for spies. The 
proceeding has been a production of Unexpected Paths Media, copyright 2021, all rights reserved. Tune in next week for a new episode of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast.